0: Well, good morning. If you haven't found your place there, uh, go to John 19, 1 through 16. As you're turning there, let me remind you, my name is Cameron, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And it's my joy today uh, to preach a message that I'm calling, Gaining by Losing. Gaining by Losing. Well, since Gavin told a police story last week, I thought it was only appropriate that I told you about the time that I accidentally ran from a cop. On a particular morning during the summer of my junior year of high school, I woke up in a groggy haze due to the fact that I had played a PlayStation 2 nearly the whole night the night before, and I start to panic when I realized I had forgot to set my alarm clock and I had to be at work at Walmart the next morning. So I fumble around and find my Nokia flip phone. I played Snake for a quick second. Then I saw that it was 10.48, and I had to be at work at 11.00. And I was at least 30 minutes away, so I had to get there. So I bowled outside, I load up in my 1993 Toyota pickup. Now keep in mind, I need to tell you at this point that I was kind of a big deal. I was the only trained uh, weekend fish dipper at Walmart, and my customers were depending on me. Uh, I knew there'd be a big line at my aquarium, so I hammered down. And not exaggerating, literally out of my seat, standing on the gas pedal on the straightaways, Drifting around curves. It was the redneck remix of The Fast and the Furious on the back roads of East Tennessee. And amid all the loud music I was bumping, probably Nellie's Country Grammar, and the rushing adrenaline and my concentration on the road, I failed to hear the sirens. And I neglected to see the blue lights that had been behind me for quite some time. So I had a decision to make would I keep hammering down, or would I hit the brakes? Well, I was tempted to keep going because I knew if I pulled over, there would be a steep price to pay. Thankfully, common sense kicked in, and I understood that my four-cylinder couldn't outrun a police cruiser, so I decided to hit the brakes. Now, let me tell you, the price was indeed costly. He had followed me for more than three miles without me being aware of the fact I was doing 88 and a 55, and he wrote me hundreds of dollars worth of speeding tickets and reckless driving tickets. And he even gave me a complimentary cussing and told me he'd haul my, I can't say it in church, to jail if I'd been 18 years old. And worst of all, he even made me call my mama. Now that was bad, but it was better than the alternative. It was better than being chased by police cars and news helicopters. It was better than the police shooting my tires out and maybe shooting me in the process. You know, when we find ourselves in situations like that, or maybe not just like that, common sense usually kicks in. And wisdom says, hey, we should surrender to authorities because if we don't, there's going to be an even greater cost to pay. See, what we see in the book of John, especially the chapters we're studying lately, is that humanity has a terrible time surrendering to the authority in the universe, namely Jesus Christ. You know, John makes it clear in his gospel that Jesus is divine. The point of his book is that Christ is the authoritative Son of God, and salvation only comes by surrendering to his name. Yet in these chapters, we see characters struggling to come to terms with Christ. Gavin reminded us last week that The Jews struggled to surrender to him because he was a threat to their authority. They didn't recognize him as Messiah, and so they accused him of insurrection, and he lobbied for his crucifixion. And then as this narrative narrows in on Pilate in chapter 19, we see him struggling to do the right thing with Jesus for similar reasons. Christ is a threat to his power. He knows he's innocent after examination, but if he lets him go, well, maybe he'd lose everything. He would fall out of favor with Rome, and it might even cost him his very life. So what about you, City Light? Can, can you relate? Are you serving Jesus on his terms? Are you trying to serve him on your terms? Do you do like I do sometimes? Do you try to keep Christ on the periphery? Or do you make him the sum and center of your life? Be honest this morning. What is it that's keeping you from going all in? And surrendering to his authority. Maybe it's a pride issue or a, a sin issue that you just can't let go of. What are you hanging on to that's hindering you? Well, here's what I hope the Spirit of God helps us to see this morning. Whatever it is, it is not worth it. Because here's the big idea in today's text though following Jesus is costly, it will cost you something, surrendering to his authority is always best for us. Yes, there's a cost associated with discipleship, but it's much, much costlier in the end if we don't follow Jesus. Now, as I study this text this week, there's so much going on here, but at least two big things stand out to me. And so first, we see why we have such a hard time surrendering to Jesus. And we struggle because, number one, We have perceived authority. We see this in verses 1 through 7. We think that we have authority. We think that we are ultimately in control of our lives and the world around us. And at times we try to manipulate Jesus, getting him to conform to our wills instead of surrendering to his will. And we see the characters in John 19 doing this in at least two ways. First of all, Pilate tries to negotiate his situation. He uses Jesus for this reason, self-preservation. To this point, Pilate has given his life to the pursuit of amassing earthly authority. And now he stands at the crossroads of his life. He believes that Christ is innocent, but the Jews are relentless in their condemnation of him. So if Pilate kills Jesus, could he live with himself? But if the Jews maintain that Christ is an insurrectionist, well, could he keep peace with Rome? Pilate's a conflicted man. He's trying to find a solution to appease his conscience and to placate the Jews at the same time. He's trying to find a way to do the right thing with Jesus, but yet he doesn't want to lose the little kingdom that he's built for himself. And then it comes to him. Well, if I can't get them to reason with me, if I can't get them to see that he's innocent, well, then maybe I can appeal to their compassion. And so Pilate uses Jesus like a pawn in his cruel game of thrones, and he has him flogged, as we see in verse 1. text simply says... Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, flogging was nothing short of torture. This is the moment in the movie when you can barely stand to watch her. you're peering at the screen between your fingers. Oftentimes, scourging was so brutal that prisoners died before they ever got to the cross. The scourge was a whip-like instrument comprised of leather straps that were capped off with heavy lead bulbs. And the bulbs were filled with chunks of bone and brass. You realize that bodies were often so torn during scourging that you could see deep seated veins. The rib cages would show. Sometimes the scourge would tear out inner organs. And so Pilate is doing all of this to appease a bloodthirsty mob. He imagines that, well, if I can present a broken and battered Jesus, though he's innocent, before the crowd, then, then maybe they'll, they'll come off the, the charge of the crucify him. Maybe they'll see that there's no way a weak man like him could ever be king and a real threat to Caesar's throne. City light, do you see what's happening here? Pilate is compromising his budding convictions about Jesus for the sake of self-preservation. See, Jesus is innocent. He realizes that there is something special about this man. but yet he, he can, So he can't bring himself to kill him, but yet he decides to punish him to alleviate some pressure. He's trying to maintain a clean conscience while also maintaining control. But what he doesn't realize is his conscience is being darkened in the process because you can't play games with Jesus. If he was innocent, the right thing would have been to have let him go and to just accept whatever consequences came because of as a result. And so church, as twisted as Pilate's reasoning is here, if we're honest, we use the same sinful logic at times, don't we? And we do this anytime we begin to formulate convictions about Christ, who Christ is. When we begin to see clearly in the word that he is the authoritative son of God, yet we don't surrender to him. We don't side with him. We try to maintain our control. We're not willing to, to pay the price. You know, it could be that you believe all the biblical facts about Jesus and you occasionally come to church to tip your hat to him and to placate your conscience. But all this talk about gathering every Sunday for worship and celebration of being a disciple and making disciples, well, you're just not ready for that kind of commitment. And even Christians, people like me, people like a lot of us that profess to follow Jesus, we often play the negotiation game, don't we? And we play this game when we hold back and we try to pick and choose which details of our lives that we'll we'll surrender to the authority of the galaxy. I mean, think about how silly this is. That would have been like me rolling down my window and yelling back to that cop in that police chase saying, hey, I'm not going to stop, but I will slow down, but I've got to get to work. My fish are waiting on me. Uh, Or maybe tossing a $50 bill out and saying, hey, I mean, I can't pay tickets, but maybe this will work. I mean, that kind of logic doesn't work with authorities and it doesn't work with Jesus. And so think with me about some ways that we negotiate with the Savior for the sake of self-preservation. Sometimes we tip instead of tithing because we're afraid to let go of that much money. And you've had your eye on this cute pair of shoes at the mall for a really long time now. You follow Jesus, but you won't be a witness for him because you hate confrontation and you fear embarrassment. But city light, is it not worth taking a risk, risking an awkward conversation for the sake of somebody's soul? Or you might say, hey, I'll break bad Jesus and evangelize everybody in my neighborhood, but don't you call me to another city or another country or to be a preacher. But listen, we will never find a negotiated, nominal Christianity in the pages of Scripture. And this play-it-safe, low-key Christianity that we dilly-dally around with is foreign to most Christians in the world. You know, Nick, Nick Ripkin, in his book, The Insanity of God, he wrote this. In China, get this, 40% of pastors, evangelists, deacons, elders, and church planters have spent three years of their lives in prison. They suggested to us that prison is their theological seminary. It's where they go for training, he writes. It's where leaders are formed. Jesus said in Luke fourteen thirty three, "Those of you who do not give up everything cannot be my disciples." See, Christ does not give us the option to negotiate. The only option He gives us is to go all in. And here's what going all in means: It means that we allow Christ to influence and to speak into every single area of our lives according to His authoritative word. Our finances. Our family, our vocation, our career, our calling, and the list goes on. Our sexuality. Nothing is off limits. But can I just say here that we gladly go all in? Because Christ is the greatest treasure we'll ever find. Jesus is Lord and he's worth it. And a new life with him. A life filled with peace and purpose and joy. Man, it's so much better than an old life I left behind. Amen? So we try to negotiate with Jesus what Pilate tried to do for self-preservation. But the other characters in this story, they're much more brazen. The Roman soldiers, they openly mock Jesus. The Jews want Christ crucified, and they do this for this reason. He did not meet their expectations. Christ didn't meet their expectations, and we see this in verses 2 through 7. I won't read it again, but here's what I mean by that. The Roman soldiers were accustomed to powerful kings, visibly powerful kings like the celebrated Caesars. They esteemed kings that took their kingdoms by force. To them, kings were the punishers. They didn't get punished. And because Christ did not square with their concept of a king, well, they mocked him and they beat him mercilessly. And then again, Jesus didn't meet the Jewish expectations either. What were they waiting for? Well, a powerful and political messiah. They wanted somebody to take back Israel by force. And when Jesus hinders their power and doesn't contribu- contribute to their agenda to overthrow the Romans, well, they're done away with him. They're finished with him. They want him crucified. So City Lot, as wicked as all this is, as hard as this text is to look at, I have to confess to you that I have been just as hostile... In my heart toward the Lord, when life doesn't go as I expect it to, when the circumstances don't go my way, you know, it's a more subtle form of mocking, but here's how we do it. Jesus, if you were a real king, then why did this happen? Just fill in the blank. What's your blank? If you really love me, you would never let blank happen. Even lately, I prayed this prayer to the Lord. Jesus, if you really called Brittany and I to serve you in Omaha, then why are you making life so hard for us right now? And I prayed that prayer in light of what I affectionately refer to, the Christmas of hell 2017. (laughs) Um, Listen, it wasn't as bad as it could have been, but it seemed like what could have went wrong, went wrong. Uh, Plane tickets were canceled back to the south as cold weather was killing me. Our car broke down, and it took uh, about $1,000 to fix it after we got there. Brittany got the flu on the way back and set the road trip record for puking in the most states in a three-hour span. (laughs) And we get home, and our apartment floods because of bursted pipes. And so now my living space looks like an episode of Hoarders. And somewhere along the way... I got a phone call from Louisville, and somebody broke the news to me that a young man that I had mentored, that I had baptized and poured my life into, that he had committed suicide. Church, I have to admit that I battled some anger in my heart toward the Lord because Jesus wasn't acting as I expected him to act when I moved to Omaha. And, you know, at times we get completely overwhelmed by suffering, and we determine to write God off completely. We size up the situation like this. Well, if God is good and sovereign, then that just can't square with all the suffering I see around me. But listen, here's the way that Tim Keller puts it. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Let that soak in just for a second. See, we'd have to be omniscient to know that. And we are not. But God is. And though at times it seems like we're just being tossed to and fro, a pawn in a cruel game of life, in God's, in God's economy, there are always redemptive purposes behind our suffering, even when we can't see them. And I submit to you that the suffering of Christ is the prime example of this. On the surface, it seems like Jesus has just been manipulated like a cruel pawn. Pilate's abusing this man to maintain his power, and the Jews are trying to crucify him because he's a threat to to their power. And when Pilate parades him out and presents him, it's so hard to stomach, isn't it? Based on what we know about Jesus, there's the Son of God. He's sinless, and he's got a battered back and a bleeding brow and a blood-soaked robe. Based on what we know about Jesus, what we've gleaned in the Gospel of John, it seems so senseless. But listen, from God's perspective and from the reader's point of view, we know it's not senseless. Rather, his suffering is a part of God's good and wise plan to save us. You know, Pilate's phrase, Behold the man, it is filled with irony because Jesus is the man. He's the apex of humanity. He's the epitome of all that humanity should be. Christ coddled babies, and he healed the sick, and he ended oppression. He was sinless, and he was perfectly obedient to his father's plan. You see, the second Adam, Jesus, succeeded where the first Adam failed. The first Adam failed God in the garden by trying to usurp his authority, and in doing so, he ushered a curse into the world, which included hard work, and thorn, and thistles, and Most severely of all, it included a severed relationship with God. And so when we see here the thorns being pressed down into the brow of Jesus in John 19, they should serve as a signal of what's really happening. God hasn't lost control. Christ's pain isn't pointless. The thorns signal that Christ is becoming a curse for us in order to save us. The king's becoming a curse, and he's taking upon his shoulders the curse that that we deserve, and he's freeing us from that curse so that we can have a restored relationship with God, as Galatians 3.13 says. And since there are redemptive purposes operating underneath the pain of Christ, you can rest assured that there are redemptive purposes underneath your pain as well. You might not be able to see them right now. And you may never see them until you get to heaven. But I promise you, God is good. I want to ask you this morning, would you continue to trust in his wise purposes and his good plan for your life? He's always working behind the scenes for your good and his glory. So instead of shaking our fists at the Lord or trying to ride him off, let's maintain a posture of surrender no matter what comes our way. And so we have seen that we have a hard time surrendering to Jesus because we prefer our own authority. But now we're going to see explicitly what we're seeing implicitly from this passage. So here's the clear reason why we should surrender to Jesus. It's obvious, but we need to hear it again. Number two, Jesus has real authority. Jesus has real authority. And we see this in verses 8 through 16. And so Pilate is frustrated that his plan to release Jesus doesn't work. And now the Jews double down. Not only did they have a charge of insurrection, now they levy a charge from their law that Christ is guilty of blasphemy, that he is claiming to be the Son of God. And now Pilate is even more afraid of Jesus, as verse 8 tells us. His conscience is screaming at him that he's innocent, that there's something more than meets the eye about this man. And remember that his depraved wife, Claudia, has had a troubling dream about Jesus. She warned Pilate, have nothing to do with this man. And now based on this current charge, Pilate's wondering, could there indeed be something divine about Jesus? And so he continues his scheming, and he brings him in for questioning. And he implores him, where are you from? But Jesus refuses to answer. And by doing so, he fulfills the messianic prophecy that we find in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. So see the contrast here? Pilate is frantically planning, scheming, but Jesus is perfectly composed He's maintaining a posture of surrender to God's plan for his life. And then Pilate tries to force out an answer by appealing to his supposed authority. We see this in verse 10. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And then Jesus makes it crystal clear to Pilate and to us where true authority lies. We see this in verse 11. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And so as Pilate tries to examine Jesus, Jesus turns around and examines him. And he deems him and Judas, while he's at it, to be sinners. Sinners. And while Pilate's trying to treat Jesus like a puppet in his plan, Jesus makes it clear that Pilate's a mere player in God's divine redemptive drama. He has zero authority unless God had given it to him. You know, Jesus is affirming a powerful truth, uh, what the disciples articulated in their prayer in Acts 4, verses 27 through 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, here's the key, want the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, God's in control. Jesus is the true authority, He's the only one to ever come from heaven. He's He preexisted with God in the beginning. He's co-equal with God. He's now God incarnate. He's the Word made flesh. And so divinity is staring Pilate right in the face. So what does Pilate do? Well, initially he tries to release him, but then the Jews clamp down and they play their ultimate trump card. And they expose Pilate's true king, his idol, in the process. We see this in verse 12. If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So, City Life, what is it, the one thing that Pilate valued most? Well, it's being a friend to Caesar. And all the power and the prestige and pleasure that accompanied that arrangement. You see, if Pilate released Jesus, then the Jews were going to bring a damning accusation against him to Rome, that he had allowed an insurrectionist to go free. So feeling the pressure, trying to hang on to his control, Pilate makes his decision and tragically he does the very thing that many of us often try to do. He refuses to give up what's most precious to him and he rejects Jesus in the process. He determines he would rather be a friend to Caesar And have all those benefits than to have the benefits that Jesus could bring him. So he finally gives in and gives him over to be crucified. And he loses his soul in the process. You know, church, it would do us all well to hear and heed this warning from James in his book, chapter 4, verse 4. Do you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? And though it takes different forms, as we discussed earlier in the sermon, Pilate's problem is essentially our problem as well. Why? Well, we are sinners by nature. And out of our default posture, we continually make friends with this sinful world system. And in the process, we render ourselves enemies of God. And so, how is it that we get back on God's good side? How do we get back on the right side of divine authority? See, we stand corporately guilty before the Lord because of our sins, and we've amassed such a sin debt that no amount of merit that we can muster can ever cancel that debt and get us reconnected to God. And so what hope do we have? Well, see, the only hope we have is the goodness of another intervening on our behalf. You know, a couple of weeks after my police chase, I Uh, Went to my mom's office to hang out with her trying to get back in her good graces And her boss mike calls me back into his office And mike was a good friend of mine continues to be he was my assistant golf coach and He sat me down. He asked me this question He said cameron have you taken care of those tickets yet? And I hung my head and said no mike. I haven't quite got the cash to pay for them and to my astonishment he replied Well, son, you can go ahead and tear them up because I have taken care of them for you. I mean, I was shocked. I mean, I was guilty. And I had no idea at the time, but as it turns out, Mike was best friends with the county sheriff. And he stuck his neck out on my behalf, even though I didn't deserve it because he loved me. And he served as a mediator of sorts and negotiated the charges and talked him into dropping all of them. So you see, I gained a good standing with Monroe County, not through my own goodness, but through the goodness of Mike. So City Light, I say to you, the only way in light of our guilt that we regain a good standing with God is through the goodness of his sinless son, namely Jesus Christ. Out of love, God sent his son Jesus. He entered the world. He stuck his neck out for us. He suffered for us. He sacrificed to save us. He lived the perfect life that we can never live. And then he died for the penalty that we deserve to to pay for on the cross. See, Jesus came to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owed a great debt and we could not pay it in our own power. So to move from being a enemy of God, to a friend of God, all you have to do is turn from your sins and trust in His goodness on your behalf. And yes, you will discover that following Jesus is quite costly. But I assure you, that cost is better than the cost you'll pay if you stay at odds with God for all eternity. For someday His invisible kingdom will be made visible and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So City life, surrendering to Jesus is always what's best for us.